Now, one of the great joys of being a child is getting to experience Christmas, and one of its great disappointments is when you realize that Christmas is over. Now, we visited my parents um, for Christmas, and so we got to celebrate a second Christmas. And one of the things that happens with children, if you get multiple Christmases, is then you start to expect that that is going to continue. And remember, as a child, after visiting my grandparents, I started to think every house I went was just, okay, where's my presents? Because I go places and people should give me gifts. But as Christians, right, we do our best to remember that Christmas is a day when we think and we wonder on the incarnation and the birth of Jesus. But the story of Jesus doesn't end at his birth. It only begins. And the divinity of Jesus and thinking about the incarnation is too significant to only think about or preach on one time a year. And Luke wants us to see this because he does something a little strange. He does what no other gospel does. He tells us a little bit about the childhood of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And the point of these stories that we'll see, we'll get two different instances of Jesus being at the temple. And we'll see that the point is really the same, and it's the same reason that we study and we wonder at the birth of Jesus. It is the miracle of the incarnation, the idea that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And the miracle of Jesus being God, it's worth studying 52 Sundays out of the year, because nothing we do today makes any sense if Jesus is not God. And so today we're going to look at these two stories of Jesus in the temple, and we're going to see what they teach us about the divinity of Jesus. We'll look first at Jesus in the temple as a newborn, then we'll see him later when he's 12, and then we'll turn to our application. Um, but if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his hands and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own souls also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until 84 years. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year, the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. 
They began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would come this morning. Would you be in this place and in, this, in our hearts and in our ears? Would you help us to see and to wonder with childlike delight at the beauty of who Jesus is? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, if you'd like to take notes in your bulletin, um, our first point is that Jesus is recognized as God from birth. Jesus is recognized as God from birth. And so divine is another word we're going to use often. It's really just another word for God. It means that from the very beginning, from Jesus' birth, right away, everyone, or not everyone, but people were recognizing that Jesus was God wrapped in flesh. In 22, and the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. And so they brought him to Jerusalem, present him to the Lord, and every, because it said, every male who opens the womb is called holy. And so they offer a sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what's going on here? Well, Mary and Joseph, they're going down to Jerusalem, and they're going there out of obedience to the law of Moses. And you notice that the offering that they give is actually a poor offering. Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8, talk about this sacrifice, if you want to study it more. And it tells us that after a woman gives birth, she needs to give a sacrifice. And they're supposed to sacrifice a year-old lamb. But if they can't afford a lamb, they can sacrifice a pair of birds instead. So we see Mary and Joseph do is they make a kind of public declaration of their poverty. And because Jesus is the firstborn son, Jesus needs to be redeemed as well, because all firstborns belong to the Lord. Not because being born first is some kind of achievement, but because every firstborn child was meant to foreshadow the birth of Jesus. And Jesus will be the firstborn who will redeem and, sac redeem and be the sacrifice for everyone else. And as they come there, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon's waiting there. It doesn't tell us if he is a priest. But it does tell us that he is a particularly holy man because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember this is before Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit has descended. Not every believer or follower of God has the Holy Spirit. Only a few get to. So the fact that Simeon does should make us pay attention to him and what he has to say. And he comes in the Spirit, in verse 27, into the temple. And the parents bring in Jesus to do to him according to the custom, and he takes him in his arms and blesses God. So the Holy Spirit, he reveals to Simeon, he's going to get to see the Messiah before he comes. And the Holy Spirit seems to just lead Simeon and tell him, hey, go to the temple this morning. There's something you need to see there. And there he sees God wrapped in flesh in Jesus. He sees what he has been longing for. He sees what Israel has been hoping for since King David's death. 
And he gives another blessing, a prophecy in a psalm in beginning 29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And I think he probably told people about the promise that God made to him. But if not, I mean, all his life he has waited for this day. And it seems that finally in his old age, it's come. We can assume he's old because he seems glad that he finally gets to die now. So he's probably been holding on and hanging on and waiting and wondering watching as his body breaks down and ages slowly, just waiting to see God's promise come true. And now it does. And he declares that he has got to see his salvation. He is one more person in a long line declaring that Jesus is God. That Jesus is what God has prepared since the beginning of the world. And in 32, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. It's amazing to see what Simeon prophesies. He says that Jesus comes not just to save Israel, but all the world. It's shocking that Simeon would say this already. It'd be shocking for the Jews who heard it. But God wants us to know that from the very beginning, the plan has always been that Jesus would save even the Gentiles. That wasn't something that happened later at Pentecost and Acts and Paul. Saving the whole world has always been part of God's plan. 34, and his father and his mother, they marvel at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, his child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that many, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Now, there's a lot to unpack in those verses. But first, you notice his parents seem to recognize the significance of Simeon's words. They marvel once again as they have been. That person after person is saying that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the Messiah. But Simeon also says something somber along with it. He says not everyone is going to receive Jesus. That some are going to oppose him. Some will rise up in salvation because they accept Jesus as God and Messiah. And some will fall in judgment because they reject him. Not everyone accepts that Jesus is God. Not even today. There are many who will call themselves Christians who deny his divinity. Because Jesus has always been divisive. And I think this mention of the the sword piercing their souls or their hearts is a reference to the cross. It's the fact that their son, the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus, their Savior, will have to die. And this will devastate not just Mary as a mother, but all of his disciples and many of his followers who flee in terror at his death. And we know Jesus will reveal everyone's thoughts. Throughout his ministry, he always seems to know what everyone is thinking. And he can always outsmart them. But I think some of this sword piercing, too, is not just with Jesus' death, but it has to do with the idea of Jesus being God. And this will force people to have to decide, what do we think about him? Do we really believe him? Will we accept him and worship him as God, or will we reject him and will we kill him? Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband from seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow for 84 more years. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. Man, what a woman Anna is. Okay, she's probably over 100 years old. Because it seems as if she's not 84 years old, that it's 84 years after her husband died, she has been living in the temple. So she spent most of her life, eight decades, worshiping, praying, fasting in God's house every single day. 
That's a good life. What a godly woman she must have been. And she's a prophetess too. She is filled with the Spirit much like Simeon. And you know, we all know that there are some people who are filled with so much wisdom, who maybe they're so godly that you want to hear anything that they have to say. I had professors like this in school where I kept a notebook that wasn't just of my notes. It was the random stuff that came out of their mouth. I would write it down because everything they said I wanted to remember. Okay, Anna is one of those people. I would want to listen and we should want to listen to anything she had to say. And so she emerges the very moment Jesus just so happens to be in town and Jesus happens to be at the temple and she praises and tells everyone redemption is here and begins to teach them. And the text, it seems to imply this is not her normal habit. She probably only emerges to speak on special occasions, or maybe she never does, and this is the first time, but now she comes to bear witness to Jesus that He is God. So two witnesses, both filled with the Spirit, tell us that Jesus is God and that He is the promised Redeemer. That's significant, I think, that there's two witnesses. You're not supposed to take just one person's word for it. But here, because two witnesses are more reliable. Now, people try to imply that, you know, the divinity of Jesus, it's a later invention. People made it up. But from the very beginning of Jesus' story, people believed that he was God. And it's made clear after miracle after miracle and witness after witness, because these aren't the first two, they are just the most recent, that Jesus is God. And from birth, people believed it was so. So the point of these witnesses is to make it abundantly clear that from before his conception to after his birth, people have always believed Jesus was God. And so point, point number two, we also see, though, in our second story of Jesus at the temple, is that Jesus also recognizes his own divinity from the beginning. Jesus recognizes his own divinity from the beginning. 39, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now, we know very little about Christ's birth, or between Christ's birth and His baptism. Few of the Gospels give us anything about His childhood. The only exception I can think of is maybe when the wise men come to see Jesus, if He's a little older. But what we see is that Jesus grows much like any other human would. God's favor is on Him in a special way because He's God, and He knows He's God. And here Luke does something significant. Here we get to see Jesus at 12 years old. 41, his parents go to Jerusalem every single year for the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12, they go according to custom. Now, not everybody has to come to Jerusalem for Passover. They, it's not required. But the fact that Jesus' family does this every year is meant to show that this is a holy family. Okay, that they are going above and beyond. They are, they are trying every single year. But on their way back, something different happens. The feast ends in 43, and they're returning, and the Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and the parents don't know. 44, supposing him to be in the group, they were a day's journey. And then they begin to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they didn't find him, they turn around, go back to Jerusalem. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on Mary and Joseph. After all, I think the text goes above and beyond to show us, hey, these are holy people. These are good, righteous people. Okay, and I'm not going to make any of us raise hands to see if you've accidentally left your child somewhere, although I think there's probably at least a few of us who have. But Jesus gets left behind, and it happens. They're in a large group. Okay, they assume he must be with their cousins, must be with his relatives, and night comes, and then they go to find Jesus, and he's not there. So they turn around and head back. Now, 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting with his teachers, asking him questions. And the people there are amazed at his understanding, but his parents see him, they're astonished. And his mother says to him, son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Okay, can you imagine their distress? I would be distressed. Three days they've spent journeying back, running all around the city, trying to find where their child is. Three days that he's missing. Three days that those who love him believe he might be gone forever. But he's totally fine and safe. And he emerges having been busy doing God's work. Well, that sounds a bit like three other days that Jesus was missing in the grave. And everyone's distressed and worried he's dead, but he's busy and he's just setting the captives free. And then he comes back. But Mary and Joseph, they don't know where he is. They probably are retracing all their steps. They're asking everyone that they know, checking with their relatives in the city, has anyone seen him? And nothing. Man, I've only thought my kids were missing for a couple moments, and that was pretty horrifying. So I can't imagine that moment extending that long. It's every parent's worst nightmare. So you can understand why Mary in 48 says, Son, why have you treated us so? It says, much nicer than what I would have said. Okay? Especially if my son was old enough that they could have come found me. I would have said something different. But Jesus' response, it's almost bewildering. He says back to them, well, why were you looking for me? Don't you know I must be in my father's house? And we know that verse. If you've grown up in church, you've heard it. But there's so much that's packed in this response. Okay, his parents are angry. And Mary specifically said, think of your father. Look how worried he is. How could you do this to us? And Jesus' response is, well, my father isn't worried. I've been in his house. I've been in my relative's house. I've been with you going back to your home. I've been in my father's house. But Jesus' statement is he acknowledges his own divinity. He's acknowledging who his earthly or who his heavenly father is. He already knows that he is God. And he understands it on a deep level. See, Jesus, he humbled himself in order to become a human being. Okay, or in order to put up with being a child. In order to be 12 years old and have to go through puberty. Okay, but God didn't get amnesia. He did not forget who he was. He always knew from the beginning that he was the Messiah and that he was God. In verse 50, and they don't understand the saying that he spoke to them. Already they don't fully understand Jesus, but Jesus does. Jesus knows who his true father is. It's not something that Mary has to teach him. It's not something that his disciples invent later on. It is something that Jesus knows. And he knows it before his baptism and before he begins his ministry. He knows he is truly God and he is truly man. 51, and then he goes down with them and he goes to Nazareth and he's submissive to them. His mother treasures these things in her heart. Now, our humble Savior was submissive to his earthly parents. The God who fashioned them in the womb does his chores. What a profound thought that is. What amazing humility and kindness that God has. That he would be willing to, to listen and to submit to imperfect parents. People whose life he breathed into their lungs. People whose every thought and desire he knows and he does it out of love for them and for us. And he did it so that he could redeem and that he could save us. And this kind of removes all excuses for not wanting to submit to people above us because they're sinners, doesn't it? I wish it didn't, but it does. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. The statement's repeated twice. We see it here in verse 52, and we also saw it in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
Now, it's repeated because it's significant. Now, these verses seem fairly straightforward. They're not difficult to understand what they mean. You don't have to read the Greek to quite get it. But we do have to be a little wary because they're theologically rich, but we can also be a little misunderstood. They tell us plainly that Jesus grew much like any other human does. He started as a newborn, and newborns can't do very much, can they? In fact, as they get older, kids can't really do very much on their own. They need help feeding themselves. They need help getting dressed. They need help going to the bathroom. Can we just start a potty training grant this weekend? Because you have to teach them how to do that. They don't know how to do that, and it's a messy thing. They need help going to sleep. They really need help with everything. And the wonder of parenting is really every step of growth is incredible to see every new word that they learn, every new thing that they can do, the time that they stop falling over all the time and can walk normally. It's amazing. Each small moment of independence is beautiful, but they all kind of take time, don't they? Okay, what these verses tell us is that Jesus had to go through all of that too. Okay, he didn't skip any parts of being human. He wasn't just born and then emerged and then started his ministry and then went to the cross. Okay, he started as a newborn, and then he had to do what newborns did. He didn't skip being a baby. He didn't skip being a toddler. He didn't even skip puberty, even though all of us would have if we could choose. None of us would do some of these things again. Maybe some things we would, and some we wouldn't. But instead, he slowly grew. Each year, he got a little taller. Each year, his muscles got a little stronger, and each year, his brain started to develop much like our human brains do. But this is where we have to be very careful. Okay, because the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation is both that Jesus is truly God, He is truly divine, and He is truly human. Somehow He is both together. He is not just God pretending to be human. He's not just pretending to be a baby, but He really is something else. He really is. He's not pretending not to talk or not being able to walk. He experienced all that we do. And He willingly accepted the limitation of our human bodies. And how slow that they grow and how frustrating that they are. I can't imagine how limiting it felt for God himself to have to put on one of these bodies. And yet he does. And he experienced it as God. But we have to be careful, right, when we discuss kind of this mystery of Jesus. Because we don't want to so overemphasize the divinity of Jesus that we make it seem like he's not really human. Or as if he was just pretending to be human. And we also can't overemphasize his humanity so much that we then make it seem like he's not really God. Because if you overemphasize either of them, you're going to get into serious trouble. Because Jesus is both. And he has to be both in order to be our Savior. In order for his life and his death and his resurrection to mean anything, he has to be both God and man. If he's only man, he can't, he's not the perfect sacrifice. He can't die for us. And if he's only God, well, he's not a good sacrifice either. He's not one of us. He's something different. So all of the, the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus, they're totally meaningless if he is not truly God and truly man, but he is. And he is both. So these verses, they can't mean, as some would suppose, well, Jesus grows and he kind of becomes God. He didn't start off as a human being and then turn into God over time. From his conception and from before his birth, he was truly God and truly man. But it can be confusing to try and put it together. 
You may notice too, I, I try to say that God's truly God and truly man instead of fully God and fully man. I'm doing that in, intentionally, not because I think that's wrong. It's just, for me, I think it's a more helpful way to think about um, and to wrap our minds around this mystery because Jesus is really God. Jesus really is a human being. And when I hear fully or 100%, I start to think percentages and go 100%, 100% plus together. I don't know how does that work and I'm not good at math. Okay, so I just get confused. And so instead, I just like to say truly. And I mean, I mean the same thing, but it, it makes more sense to me. And now this might seem like a weird theological rabbit trail. Um, and I'm sorry. But the divinity and the humanity of Jesus is at the center of our faith. It is at the core of it. Okay, if Jesus isn't truly God, if he's not truly divine, he's not truly human, we're wasting our time and we should all go home and sleep in. This is something that we have to get right. But at the end of the day, too, the incarnation is not a math problem where you've got to figure out percentages. And it's a mystery that we should ponder. So if you don't fully get it, that's okay. Keep pondering it. Treasure it in your heart like Mary. All week long, I've just been meditating and thinking on the fact that Jesus was a child and he submitted to his parents. And just meditating and wondering on that. It's a beautiful, it's like a beautiful painting you should gaze and wonder at even if you don't understand everything about it or who did it or, or why. We just look at it and think, wow, this is beautiful. That's how we should treat the incarnation. And so ultimately the question for us is whether or not we're going to believe what Jesus believed about himself. So point number three is, do you recognize Jesus's divinity? Do you recognize Jesus's divinity? This is the question that we have to grapple with. It's the most important question this passage asks. It's the most important question, I think, in the whole universe. It's really the only question that matters. Simeon told Mary that many were going to reject Jesus, that they, would reject, they wouldn't reject him because they didn't like his teachings, because the message of the kingdom of God is not just that people need to be kind to each other. People should just love each other. Just get along, guys. People didn't hate Jesus because he worked miracles and they were jealous. That was part of it. People ultimately rejected Jesus because he claimed to be God. And that's a claim you have to deal with. You can't halfway accept Jesus. You've got to decide, is he God or is he not? Because if he's God, we've got to obey him. And if he's God, we owe him everything. If he's not God, he's a liar or a lunatic, as kind of C.S. Lewis famously said. But we do have to famously deal with his claims. Not the claims of Jesus' disciples generations later, but the claim that some would say, but the claims that Jesus himself makes and knows from the very beginning. So do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe the testimony of the witnesses of Simeon and Anna? Do you believe the testimony of Luke? Testimony of the angel Gabriel? Testimony of the entire heavenly host, the testimony of the shepherds, testimony of the star and the three wise men, the testimony of Jesus' own mouth, testimony of all the scriptures, the apostles and disciples of Jesus. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is God? There's a multitude of witnesses throughout all of the ages who stand up in the heavens now and testify, Jesus is God. Do we hear their voices and will we believe? Because Jesus came down as God to save us. But we have to receive him as God. It's the entire foundation of our faith. It's why we call ourselves Christians. Not just because we thought he was cool, but we think that Jesus is God and we worship him.
So if you're not a Christian this morning, well, I invite you to accept the testimony of Jesus. Believe that He is God. Come and experience salvation. Come home as that song that we just sang. Because it's available to any who would come. Jesus came and did all this to save and redeem broken people. Sinners who, who are lost. Those who think that they are too far gone. Those who barely understand the Bible when they read it. You don't have to get everything right, every point of theology. We'll help you there. But you do got to believe that Jesus is God. And if you don't believe that He's God, well, don't, don't waste your time. Stop calling yourself a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian, we too have to recognize Jesus' divinity. Don't stop and go, okay, well, yeah, Pastor, I believe Jesus is God. I'm good. Okay, we'll recognize His divinity, not just with our words, but with our deeds, with what we do, with how we live, that we would live as if we really believe that Jesus is God, that we would read His words as if they are the spoken words of God. After all, this is one of the reasons that we stand when we read God's Word, not just because we think it's a cool book, but because it's a way to remind us that God is speaking, and we should listen, we should act like it. Don't treat Jesus like we treat our favorite sports team. Cheer for Him sometimes when it's going well, and maybe we just ignore it and turn it off if it's not going how we want. We need to treat Him as if He was God. Far too many Christians are happy to recognize Jesus as God with their mouths, but they fail to recognize Him as God with their actions. Would that not be so with us? Where we've been this morning, we're just talking about Jesus being God. He's recognized as God from birth. Jesus recognizes himself as divine from birth. And do you recognize Jesus' divinity? So all of us need to make a decision, as we should every day, and then we should live like we actually believe it. Why don't you bow your heads with me and I'll invite our worship team to, to come up. Lord, I, I thank you that you came. That even though you were God, you were willing to come and become one of us. Not because it seemed like a fun party or like it would be a great, wonderful experience, but you humbled yourself out of love to save and redeem us, people who did not deserve it. You've done nothing to merit your love and your grace, and yet you give it freely and abundantly above all that we could ever think or ask. Lord, thank you. Lord, would we recognize how big of a miracle that is? Lord, would you forgive us for ever being bored by the idea that you are God? Would you help us and would you guard our hearts from getting too comfortable with the idea to assume that we understand everything about it and that we got it? Would you help us to wonder like children? with childlike faith. Lord, help us to, to not just believe that you are God, but to live like it. And all that we say, think, and do. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand um, as we worship our Savior through song one more time. Bless his name. Um, come join us again on Wednesday. We're going to start a series on the Ten Commandments. Um, and we're just going to look at each commandment one at a time. Um, we'll find that there's a lot of depth there and there's that we are failing to do. Um, 
But hear this benediction from the end of 1 Corinthians 1, 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.